1: I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. The US presidential election is just weeks away, so I'm delighted to be talking to someone who has been in the front line of US politics for the last 20 years. She is no stranger to the White House, having worked for both President Bill Clinton and President Barack Obama. She was communication director for Hillary Clinton's 2016 presidential campaign and saw firsthand the misogyny and gendered treatment Hillary endured. Her experiences inspired her to write two books about gender and leadership, Dear Madam President and She Proclaims, Our Declaration of Independence from a Man's World. She also hosts a podcast, There's Just Something About Her. She is a guest host of Showtime's The Circus and a contributing editor to Vanity Fair. I'm speaking to her with 21 days to go until Election Day. Jennifer Palmieri, a very warm welcome to a podcast of one's own. It is a real honour to be with you. I have followed your
0: career for a long time and Hillary Clinton and I used to Reflect about your days as Prime Minister when we were going through and some of the things that you encountered when we were going through our own presidential campaign. So I feel like a kindred spirit. It's really an honour to be with you.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Now, Jennifer, I normally start these podcasts talking about my guests' childhood and their early run-ins with gender stereotyping. But today I'm going to vary from that format and start with getting your take on the 2020 US election campaign. The polls are telling us consistently that Biden is ahead of Trump. Should we believe them?
0: I wouldn't have blew them entirely. Right. We all have a little post-traumatic stress from 2016, which polls showed Hillary ahead. Not quite as much as Biden, but it was even this same weekend four years ago where Trump really started a crater because of the Access Hollywood tape. Came out. And so, you know, four years to the same weekend, I hear people saying, well, the bottom's really falling out for him and it's really over. And that's what people said four years ago. So I do think that the notion that there is a hidden Trump voter that's not reflected in the polls is a real phenomenon. I mean, I add two or three percentage points in his favor to every state poll I see because I think that. Uh, There are likely not capturing all of his support, but there are things that are different this time. Uh, For example, seniors are breaking for Biden by very big numbers. That is something that didn't happen in 2016, the gender gap is monumental. You know, it's 25 to 30 points in Biden's favour and geographically just Biden has a lead in states that Hillary never had leads in like Arizona and it does feel more solid this time.
1: I want to delve into where women are in this campaign and if I can just follow up by asking you where women voters are, Looking at Hillary's unexpected loss to Donald Trump, people looked at the women's vote and she didn't win in all categories of women voters. What are you seeing now that's different? Obviously, Biden is very much ahead, women overall, but can you break that down for us? So with Hillary, the you know the
0: thing that people point to is that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump and that number is when you see Biden have a gender gap of 25 points with women, some polls have it as high as 30, Trump has lost a fair amount of white women as well. And I think that, I, I mean, I live in a constant state of post-traumatic stress from 2016, where I'm just constantly, go, you know, you look like Biden's ahead, but then you say, but that's what we thought the last time. But I think a number of voters, you know, the, the big difference is Trump has been president for four years and we're in the middle of a pandemic, right? It's, it's hard to imagine a worse scenario from which he would run for reelection. And I think a lot of women thought it's worth a shot. He's something different. And they're just not buying, you know, the outcome right now that they've seen him in the job and particularly with the pandemic here and how badly mishandled it's been. He's lost a lot of women. I don't know that he's lost women by being some of these women that voted for him last time because he's disrespectful to women or, you know, I, I don't think it's about that. I think it's more about just incompetence and feeling like they are that their families
1: aren't safe with him as president. Do you think the prospect that the Supreme Court could end up revisiting the decision in Roe v.ersus Wade and ending the access of American women to legal abortions, do you think that's playing into the women's vote?
0: So it's interesting because I expected when this happened, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died and it was clear that we were going to have the Supreme Court and and Roe v. Wade was going to be Part of the presidential campaign in the closing weeks. I assume that would be to Trump's benefit because. Historically in the States, that has been a motivating the court, and abortion has been a motivating issue on the Republican side. But what I found anecdotally, just in covering the campaign, and what we found with polls, it's that it's the Democrats that cite the Supreme Court as a reason to vote for Trump by a much bigger number. 64% of Democrats say that it's important to them, and it's closer to 50 for Republicans. So there's been a switch in the U.S. where about the court is more motivating to Democrats and Republicans. The other thing that's changed is that while for the last couple of decades, people have always largely supported Roe v. Wade here, but supporting restrictions, more and more restrictions on abortion has become more popular. But again, I don't know if this is a reaction to Trump, but just the, the polls now on wanting to keep Roe v. Wade really high. They're well over 60, some are 67%. So it is a big majority of the American public want to keep Roe v. Wade. And I'm finding it is not, so it's not the motivating factor that you thought it might be on the Republican side. My colleague, Alex Wagner, who's part of the circus, went to a Women for Trump event and talked to a number of women there and asked him about Roe v. Wade. And none of them said it was the motivating issue for them. Most of them said they thought Roe v. Wade would never get overturned, nor do they want it to. And they were attracted to Trump for other reasons. They were attracted to Trump for law and order. The opportunity for Biden is if young people turn out in historic numbers and numbers that they don't normally do, Biden will win. I mean, he will win big. And it is Roe v. Wade is a hugely motivating issue for young voters. They cite it as something. So I think there's an opportunity more so for Biden to make some gains here about the
1: court and Roe v. Wade than for Trump, surprisingly. That is surprising. That is a very surprising result. I also want to talk to you about the treatment of women running in this campaign, and obviously I want to talk to you about the treatment of the woman who is running at the most senior level. So Senator Harris is making an historic bid to be the first woman and first person of colour to be vice president. Can you name for me three or so of the sexist tropes most commonly (laughs) used against Hillary? Are they still being used? Is Senator Harris in her VP run having to put up with them as well? So that is why my podcast is called There's Just Something About Her. I imagine this is something you've heard
0: said about yourself.
1: Absolutely. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah there's just something about her I don't like. There's just something about her I don't trust and I think that 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 was the thing that we heard i mean on the campaign we we had an acronym for it we called it t s a h i j d l and i think that like what it revealed to me was because people had these questions about women candidates, it doesn't mean all the world is sexist, but it does mean that we have a lot of gender bias. This is what I think partly you went through. I did not appreciate what a big deal it is to not have the model in people's heads of what it looked like for a woman to be president of the United States. And so I think what we ended up doing in Hillary's campaign was we had to prove that she could do the job the same way it has always been done, right? And that meant the same way a man had done it. And I think in doing that, you're sort of trying to jam her into this ill-fitting suit. What emerges is an image of a woman people don't recognize. It's confounding, vexing. There's something about her I just don't like. That was our biggest problem. And, you know, the way it manifests itself is the suspicion, yeah, I think this is why emails became such a big issue in our campaign because it's a seemingly small thing it is like at the root of the controversy was a sense that Hillary was hiding something that Hillary's always hiding something when I would press reporters about it, why they were so concerned, you know, they'd say we just need to answer the questions and you answer the questions and they come up with more questions. And I think you know, at the root of it was, they would say, well, she's always hiding something. She's always so sketchy. She's always so suspicious. And you know, then he's like, listen to what you're saying. <laughs> like, Listen to what you were saying about her. There is nothing, you know, well, Whitewater, well, Whitewater, we proved there was nothing at Whitewater. Well, that's true. But now, you know, and it doesn't mean that they're, again, it doesn't mean that they're all sexist. I think if we don't acknowledge that not everyone who has these views are sexist, people tune out, they don't hear, right? It's like we all have gender bias and we can be blind to it. But then there was the out and out misogyny of lock her up and this sort of irrational hatred of her, but the more troubling thing that I think still lingers for women that ran in 20 was that there's just something about her. And, you know, the six women that ran for president in 2020 on the Democratic side, what I found for them, the way it manifested itself this time was an electability. Well, sure, you're qualified. Will people actually vote for you? And of course, just by raising the question, you are, it becomes self-fulfilling in some way, right? Their road is made harder. From the very beginning, when the race first started in the spring of 19, it was Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, and Pete Buttigieg were at the top of the polls. You know, even though we had six women who had never lost a race that were running for uh, president, who had way more experience than Pete Buttigieg, eventually Elizabeth Warren, gained a lot of support, so did Amy Senator Amy Klobuchar, but it took many, many months because we buy into the men right away. We recognize them right away. It takes a long time for the women. With Senator Harris... You know, her big problem was people thought she had too much ambition. <laughs> and <laughs> we, we, we've heard that before. <laughs> I, mean, I suspect this may be also something you have some personal experience with. When she was being considered to be vice president, former Senator Chris Dodd, who's a really close advisor to Joe Biden, said he was concerned because she had too much ambition. And she couldn't be a good partner to Joe Biden. You know, my reaction to that was, well, Joe Biden ran for president against Barack Obama, right? Yes. When Joe Biden ran against Barack Obama in 2008, he said that Barack Obama was unqualified to be president. You know, it was like he was tough on him. Still, Barack Obama picked him and found that Joe Biden was able to put away his frightful ambition, all that frightful ambition, was able to put that aside and be a good partner to Obama. So I feel like the difference between... 16 and 20 is the women candidates still facing these issues, but at least we recognize them this time and we called them out, right? The press understood, ooh, we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't ask Elizabeth Warren how she's going to deal with the likability problem. That's not right. You know, Chris Dodd said this stuff about Harris's ambition, but Joe Biden still picked her, right? She still became the nominee. So it's not like we're
1: not there, but there's progress. Let me just delve into that a little bit because I think it's exciting, energising to hear you think it's getting a bit better. So, you think it's getting better in the sense that because people have kind of seen this movie before with Hillary, now there's more sensitivity when people come up with the old fashioned sexist tropes. People are more likely to recognise them and call them out. Is that right? Yes, and even with the press corps, I I found in 2016. Well, I guess I would
0: say this: It's like in 2020, I did not work for any candidate, but I was covering the race, and you know, worked with a lot of female reporters. And there are you know constant long text chains going back and forth with eye rolls about the coverage of the female candidates, and I I felt like. Not that the female journalists were being inappropriate and siding with one candidate over the other, but there was a shared sense, sense that we were all in a fight together, that the female journalists recognized the tropes that the candidates got subjected to. They didn't fall for the kind of those kind of tropes themselves, the female journalists, and then they would call them out, you know, and Twitter is helpful for this. They would call it out when it did happen. They would push back on their male colleagues when their male colleagues would might fall prey to some of this. And then there was on the outside, there were women, you know, in the democratic sort of political ecosystem, women, women organized to take on this fight when Harris... A lot of women, including Cecile Richards, who she was a head of Planned Parenthood in the U.S. for a long time. Her mom was Ann Richards, who was governor of Texas, very famous, first female governor of Texas, very famous figure. She and some of the women that organized Time's Up, which was a part of the Me Too movement here, they had a public letter that went they sent out to the press before Harris was named to say, we're watching you. We know that there is going to be a woman nominee, it may be a woman of color, and we are watching your coverage for sexist coverage, we're watching it for racist coverage, and we're going to call it out when it happens. And I felt like just that shot across the board really may put the press, they were just much more careful. And Harris has not had that much problem, knock on
1: wood, six weeks or so since she's been the, the nominee with the coverage, it's been better. That's very heartening to hear. Can I ask you about women more broadly in the campaign, women running in the House and the Senate? What are you seeing? Are there more women putting themselves forward?
0: Yeah, I mean, we had records were set in two thousand the 2018 cycle, record number of women elected, record number of women who ran. And I think that there was a sort of moment for, if you were a woman in America that did not support Donald Trump and he won, it was like, in case I needed to be hit in the head by a two by four to tell me that women are playing by a set of rules that was not made for them, right? Playing a man's game by a set of rules that we could never win by. That was the wake up call they needed. And, you know, I was really worried when Hillary first lost. I mean, that was one of my first thoughts was women are going to be so devastated and feel chastened, right? Feel like their voice doesn't matter. Maybe feel scared. and. For a few weeks, women did feel that way, I think. You saw that, but then they like something kicked in and they felt empowered. It's like part of it is simple as like if this guy can win become president of the United States, I can do anything. It's like seriously. You serious? That guy's be president United States. Okay, I am like reworking my life, and and a lot of women ran for office, and I think you know the sort of phenomenon where women feel that they have to have certain qualifications and achieve certain things in their resume, and a phenomenon developed here where as is became a thing. Like I'm running as is, and I'm not going to you know worry if I have you know if I have the right schooling or enough experience. I'm, I'm good enough as I am as is. And, you know, record number of women won and the women that did the freshman class and that that's in the Congress right now, those women are phenomenal and really changing what the Congress looks like and what representation looks like. It's so important. So that sort of generation of women that are running for office now, 17, 18, 19, 20, that is like big change. I mean, even more so than when I see the presidential level, it's a big deal.
1: Here in Australia, we watch your politics closely because it matters to us and we worry for you. And I think many, (laughs) so if you're feeling a warm vibe coming off Australia, that's what it is. We worry for you. And I think many Australians are worrying that even when the ballot's done, there will be carry-on, that President Trump appears to be positioning to question the result of the ballot to potentially claim that it's rigged. And people here are worried that that might lead to civil disturbances in the US or other sorts of violence and problems. What's your thinking about that?
0: worry about it too. I wish I could say there there's nothing to worry about. There is. You know, there's a huge, just this huge epic fight underway here legally. You know, there's a fight in the courts to on the Democratic side to try to make it as easy as possible for people to vote by mail, to make sure that all the votes get counted. There is a big effort on the ground where you're trying to get lawyers to turn out to protect the vote at polling stations. So if voters have problems, there's someone there to help troubleshoot them. And Trump keeps recruiting what he calls poll watchers. I have air quotes around that, poll watchers, you know, which are his supporters coming to intimidate people. They're asking former law enforcement or off-duty law enforcement to show up at polls to make sure there's not any trouble. And in the last debate, there's a white supremacist group here called Proud Boys. And in the last debate, he was asked to denounce them, and he said they should stand by, sort of putting them on notice. So there's a lot of concern. And we saw this summer during the protests that we had over the killing of George Floyd, the unarmed black man that was killed by a police officer in Minnesota, we saw what Trump was capable of doing. He asked all the governors to bring out the National Guard he tear gas protesters in the park across the street from the White House so he could cross it to hold a Bible upside down, by the way, in front of a church and call out the protesters. So the best anecdote to that, I think, is a huge, you know, just a blowout win for Biden. I think even people who are, Steve Bannon, who was a Big political advisor of Trump's last time. Even he said in an interview he did with one of my colleagues, John Heilman, he's, you know said, if there's a significant Biden win, that Trump would accept it. So that's what we're hoping for, something that, because what could happen on election night is Republicans are expected to vote in person on election day. A lot of Democrats are voting by mail or dropping their, you know, are voting early. And in some states, the early votes don't get open and counted until election night, which means it's going to take a while for those votes to get counted. And what could emerge on election night is something that they're calling a red mirage here, which means because the people who voted on election day are mostly Republicans, it will look like Trump won, but when the votes are all counted, Biden will be the winner. And you can imagine how precarious that will be those intervening days. It's why Hillary Clinton Sad that Biden should not concede until all votes are counted and we're, like, pretty certain of the outcome. But people are really, yeah, it's scary. We're, I, I don't I don't
1: know how that's going to go down, not like anything we've ever seen before. It's a very anxious year and we're sending good vibes, sending good thoughts all the way from yeah. Australia. I now want to circle back to what's given you such incredible expertise in both gender issues and politics you were born in Mississippi, which I think from what I know is a fairly conservative place in the US. <laughs> <It's> true. <laughs> when did you first think to yourself, wow, boys and girls get treated differently. I'm being treated differently just because I'm a girl. I just, I sort of experienced in a different
0: way. I had, I'm youngest of four girls in my family. I didn't have any brothers. And I think I'm coming to appreciate that that was probably a very big deal. So I didn't have a sense in my own family that There were different expectations or for girls and boys or that the the girls were treated differently than the boys it's that time of the year your vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax
1: and think about
0: work you really really want it all to
1: work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
0: I do remember I grew up in a Navy family and we were stationed in Mississippi. That's why I was born there. We were there for quite a while, though. I was eight when I left. And I remember my sisters, because they lived in other parts of the country, would say, hey, you guys, right, to their girlfriends. And the girls would say, We're not guys. Do not call us guys. Say y'all, right? That's why with hey y'all. And 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 your comedian, Hannah Gatsby, who I interviewed in my podcast, by the way. Hannah said that, you know, that was like the most, it's the most all-encompassing greeting you could have is to say y'all. And I remember being inspired by that because I loved that these women didn't think. They thought that being called a guy that was not acknowledging power or anything on their part that was like they they were different and they were proud of it and so I kind of went about life with that sort of spirit, and it really was not until I went into the workplace with you know all these things you've internalized where you sort of expect to do worse than the men, expect you're going to be paid less than them expect you're gonna have to work harder, not really vocalizing these things, but I thought that we were on the right path and that eventually if you did work a little harder, you would you would achieve all the same kind of success that men did. And then I started working for men that were ten years older than me. Or ten years I started working for men that were ten years younger than me. Right. And you're like, wait a minute, what is happening? And that is when I started to realize you know, what do I own in that? It's like, oh, I thought I was doing great in a man's world and I realized I was doing great making it run well for them. They would say about me, oh, Jennifer, she's such a great number two, not a number one, she's a great number two. Oh, Jennifer, we couldn't possibly do it without her. And they couldn't, they're right. But I, you know, what I I realized, what I was sort of doing was propping this all up. That was when I was like, oh, I got to step back from this. This is like, women aren't on the right path. We don't have a woman president. We don't have... You know, only Congress is 75 percent men, 100 years after women won suffrage. I just just, like we we have run out of road. We got to do things differently. That was sort of my path.
1: Let's have a talk about that. I mean, you obviously ended up in progressive politics and you've worked for names that every Australian would recognise, uh, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama and some people that uh, we would recognise, less in Australia, obviously, Leon Panetta and others, uh, names known to people who follow US politics yeah. but not right throughout Australia. So you, you worked in all sorts of high-level political jobs I want to talk very directly about your journey as a feminist through that, and you've just started that conversation. You clearly went into this world thinking, if I outwork, outachieve, people will notice how good I am and the benefits will come. But now you see things differently, and your new book centres around the idea of women no longer playing a man's game, but instead breaking down the system. Can you describe for us what you mean by that and this journey that you've been on? I thought the women's rights movement
0: was in the past. I graduated from college in 1988, started working then, and I thought that was a fight from the '60s, and it was settled and I looked to the men to figure out how I was supposed to behave. Where could I, where could I fit in? And, you know, it was in sort of a supportive role, which is historically the way women have felt fit into men's lives. And I also tried to be supportive to other women, right? But it would eat at me. I would think that if I was helping a woman get a job or, you know, join my workplace or be recognized in the workplace, you know, there was that doubt. Am I helping someone who's going to replace me? Am I helping a woman that's going to outshine me? You know, and then as I continue to look around, as I got older and work for a guy, you know, when I was deputy communications director at the white house, my boss was 10 years younger than me. He was the white house communications director Dan Pfeiffer. Dan does not think he's 10 years better than me, right? He doesn't. He was a very good colleague. All of my male colleagues were very good colleagues and still they rose faster than me, right? They just somehow proved to be more buoyant. And you realize something else is happening here that it's not, you know, and the realization I had was it's not enough to just let women into the man's game. I think that, Without changing some of the underlying rules of how it works, because basically for a hundred years, with that, I kind of pinpointed when you know women in America got suffrage in 1920, that sort of gave us entry into the professional and political world, and we followed a man's path, kind of modeled ourselves after them, and that worked for decades. And then about 20 years ago, we just started banging into the same glass ceilings, right? Just like not, we're not making progress on closing the wage gap. We're not making progress in leadership positions. You know, And I think women kept would look at that problem and think, well, what more do we have to prove? What else do we have to do differently? And my point is, you're not doing it wrong. You have come as far as you can in a world that's made for men. It can't contain us. It's not big enough. It didn't envision us. It was created by men and women were excluded from the start. You know, and that's why you have to imagine something different now. First of all, the most important thing I think is for women to see that our success is linked to the success of other women. You know, I'm sure you, I mean, you know from your book, there's you know, all sorts of research that shows this. You know, when women make more money, other women make more money. When you sell yourself short, that means other women aren't going to get paid what they are worth. And I felt like I didn't need the help of other women. I was going to make it on my own. If you if you were somebody that was part of like a women's support group or the workplace, it meant you couldn't hack it. And what I've come to appreciate is if you want to take it to the next level, you need that sisterhood to support you and you have to be part of it. Because in the end, we're all battling the same obstacles. And it doesn't mean men are trying to hold us back. It just means... We got to change the system because it never envisioned us. And even though that seems in 2020 sort of a dated thing to say, wow, we live with that reality every
1: day. And just some aspects of that reality that you talk about in your book, ones that struck me, you very clearly make the point that men focus on doing their jobs, women tend to do their jobs, but also all of the background things that make a workplace tick over that if they didn't do wouldn't get done and the whole thing would fall over, but that they don't get recognised for doing and that, that adds working hours you talk to about showing emotion at work and the sense many successful women have that if they one day fail to bite their bottom lip hard enough and they let a tear slide down their face that they will be judged harshly for that. And you're really asking us to to interrogate what merit is, who sees merit, how it's weighed. You used a beautiful phrase before of the men had buoyancy. Yeah. What is it we need to change so that there's equal access to buoyancy?
0: Well, I think the first thing, I mean, I have a chapter in my book about that's written to men, because I do think, I mean, most seriously, most men in my life, they want women to be doing better. So it's to understand that just because you're not sexist doesn't mean you don't have gender bias. So when... You interview people and it just so happens you interview two men and two women, but you keep defaulting to men because they're just a better fit, right? Of course, they're a better fit. Of course, they're a better fit. The whole professional workplace was modeled for them, you know, to like understand if maybe a woman would do the job differently, but that might be what you need to understand that we all judge. It's a thing. There's lots of social research that shows us. We judge men on their potential and women on their accomplishments. So when you look at a, a young man and say, wow, he's such an ambitious, earnest young guy and you can imagine his how well he'll do in the future, but you don't see that promise in a young woman. You got to be aware of that. And so I think that for people to be more cognizant of that is a big start. And then for women, you know, I think part of the reason why we die for every ball and we do do things that keep whatever workplace we work in that keep it running, even though it's not part of our job, I think it's because we think we don't actually belong there, right? Like what we're revealing is that at our gut, we're worried that we're going to get kicked out or be found out. Like, what are you doing here? <laughs> you don't belong here. It's why we're wrong to think that, you know, when we when we think we're in competition with other women for some finite amount of success for women in the workplace, what we're really saying is women don't belong here. Women are just visitors. And so we reveal all the ways in which, we doubt our, whether we deserve what we have. And I think just some of the stuff is so amorphous and also just so internalized for all these lessons that we learned. To write about it and call them out and have people be aware of it is an important thing. And like if I had to say the most important thing for women to do in two words of support women. That means yourself too. I mean, I, in the last few years, I've been a much better partner to women, and I have not found, not only not come at a cost to me, it has really rebounded for me. I mean, I'm just, it has opened a whole world to me about being able to take, you know, what I want to do in the world to the next level. And, that's the one thing if women could rid that from their minds would make a huge difference. I think it keeps a cap on everything. I really do that. Like if you think that only a few women can succeed, of course we're going to continue to prop up that world where they do.
1: One area where I think we've made progress is the visibility and the preparedness to call out sexual harassment, the Me Too movement. And just from your history, Monica Lewinsky, obviously a name people would recognise, was your intern. Yeah, I've had quite an experience. Yeah. Yeah, quite an experience. In fact, it was at a little birthday party for you at work that Bill Clinton met Monica Lewinsky. You believed President Clinton's initial denials about the nature of his relationship with Monica. Looking back on that now and thinking about Me Too and what we've all learned along the way, How do you reflect back on that? And how important do you think Me Too is to this women supporting women journey of change that you've just spoken of?
0: Monica was my intern. And then I worked for US Senator John Edwards, who ran for president and had ended up that he had had a child out of wedlock uh, while he was married to his wife during the presidential campaign. So I've had a lot of experience with this. And you know, when the Lewinsky story broke, that said that, you know, that President Clinton had had an affair with her, you didn't believe it because it was, you're like, how could he be so stupid? (laughs) Right? Right? Of course you don't believe it because that would be so incredibly reckless to do. And that was, you know, that was my thought about him. But in real time, watching the way Monica was hunted was so chilling. You know, she was treated like a pawn in a game that was all about men in power, right? So the independent counsel, his name was Ken Starr, who sort of sought her out and interrogated her. They basically scooped her up. That's like the terms the U.S. intelligence uses for like when you... Capture a spy or a terrorist. They like scooped her up at a shopping mall and basically held her for a long time and basically, you know, interrogating her without a lawyer. And then she just became this national joke. And I remember watching her mother leaving the FBI after she had been questioned and she just looked physically broken. You know, even then, while I didn't think President Clinton should have been impeached because I didn't think that the people who were seeking his impeachment were doing it out of concern for Monica. It was all just about, again, she was just like collateral damage. And I used to have nightmares that I ran into her and I wouldn't know what to say to her, right? I would run into her and my mouth would open and nothing would come out. You feel like some sort of guilt about what you exposed her to, you know, when it became you know, when you understood what what really happened, I mean, for President Clinton, it's like, you know, people in the Me Too movement talk about the power dynamic. This is like abuse of the power dynamic on a historic scale, right? He's president of the United States. She's a young intern. She's not even a staff person. I didn't think he should be impeached, but he went on and her life was forever changed in a way that his wasn't. And then a few years ago, I ran into her in Vancouver, weirdly, as like a bank of elevators at a hotel. And I uh, I was like, Monica? And of course she braces, right. Cause she's when people approach her, but then she recognized who it was, you know, I found, I knew what to say. I said, I'm so sorry. Right. So sorry, just for what everything that she had been through because he was a democratic president, right? It's all because of, of him. And when I see things evolve and what I think Me Too in the United States is about is we used to, we were always interested in sex and politics, but it was all about what does this say about the man, right? So like with JFK, if he had an affair or, you know, and then going on to like with Clinton, it wasn't concerned about Monica. It was like, well, what does this say about Bill Clinton? What does this to say about John Edwards? And now the change is the concern is about what impact did this have on the woman? It's not just that the man shouldn't advance because of what he did, or that it reflects badly on him. He needs to be held accountable to her. That's what I see differently now.
1: Yeah. How do you think she responded? I mean, it's sort of sad to hear that she she braced, that she has to move around the world right. thinking thinking she needs to brace when people come up to say hello to her. It was a big deal. I could tell it was a big deal. I mean, you no, know, no,
0: no one from our world, no one from the Clinton world, had ever said they were sorry to her. And we're friendly, you know. You can't see anyone because, as you may know, we have a out-of-control pandemic in the United States.
1: We've <laughs> heard a bit about that because
0: apparently Donald Trump is president of the United States. So I can't see anybody. But she's means my life now, and it is good to you know, something that's always bothered me. You know, I even had a sense that it was my fault somehow, right? That the, Like when he was getting the peach, I had the sense that I brought this on because she was my intern and they met, you know, in our office at my birthday party. And I feel like that seems sort of silly, but I think all women can relate to the sense that something bad happened at my workplace. I must be responsible somehow. Again, I think that that is as a sense of like, I don't actually belong here. If something bad happened, I'm going to be asked to leave. I don't think men have that reaction. We just own too much. Don't hold men, don't hold women accountable for things men do, is my bottom line. Yeah. <laughs> and for
1: you, that is holding too much. None of that was your fault. None of that was, yeah. Your but
0: fault. it was just like, you know, you just, you're like, it's not my fault, but I, I set it in motion. Right. And to even worry about that shows like, you think you're going to get found out. You think you don't belong here.
1: Mm. I'm going to come now to a set of questions that we conclude each podcast with, the first of which is to ask you about a fact. And your fact is the National Women's Law Centre, as reported in the New York Times, has done an analysis which says of the 1.1 million people aged 20 or over in the US who left the workforce, neither working nor looking for work, between August and September... Over eight hundred thousand were women. I know. What's your reaction? It's like we could
0: either women can either slide back now in the United States because of this. This is what the pandemic is revealing is just how broken the economics and the way we look at the economy is in the US. So we could either slide back or women could say, Okay, this is the moment that we all come together to fight for real change, like childcare. It's a huge economic issue. You know, we, as you know, we have like an abominable situation with childcare in the United States is an abomination. And women are losing jobs at the higher rate in the pandemic. They are the most essential workers. They're the lowest paid workers and they're bearing the brunt at home when it comes to child raising and teaching children online. And it's like, okay, this shows we have to have dramatic, dramatic change. So I choose to try to keep women focused on that as opposed to thinking I'm gonna fall back. I mean I have girlfriends who are saying I can't it's too much. I can't do it. I'm gonna quit my job because it's too much to try to balance all this.
1: What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your career?
0: Oh my God. Well Hillary, I mean I just I can't get past locker up, right? I can't mm. I feel in my own career it's very low grade misogyny, right? Which is the most persistent that what you're considered for job-wise, television contracts can go to, you know, fat old white guys, but if you're a woman over 50, uh, it's much harder to come by. You know, it's, it's been that kind of thing, but the real eye-opener that was sort of liberating in some ways, because you realize, oh, if this exists in the world, it explains a lot to me,
1: but the locker up rallies, that it's just, hopefully nothing will ever be worse. If you were all powerful and you could change one thing for women overnight, what would it be? It would be that it would be believing that
0: they are not that they're in competition with each other. I wrote the book I did because I wanted women to be to feel like you got this. There's nothing more they have to prove. There's nothing more We need to learn you're not doing it wrong. You've just been operating in a world that wasn't built for you. And just if I could instill that bit of confidence in women's heads, I think it would make a big
1: difference. Virginia Woolf says, There is another way of fighting for freedom without arms. We can fight with the mind. Jennifer says?
0: Jennifer says, Amen. If If you change the way you engage in the world, you change the world, right? If you change what's in your mind about how you view your place in the world and that causes you to change the way you engage in the world, you know, for me, I never thought I'd write a book. I did. Then I have changed the world and I and I want women to appreciate that. I am a huge fan of A Room of One's Own, by the way. That helped me in writing my book, She Proclaims, which is a declaration of independence from a man's world because it was like, okay, there was suffrage And that was great. And then Virginia Woolf wrote A Room of One's Own and it was like, yes, we have the vote. That's not enough. We need our own place where we can, where we're not defined by men. We're not sort of confused by their world. And that helped put me on a path to say, well, we should declare our independence from their world. You know, it all moves in stages like that. But that was, that was like, oh, she called the podcast.
1: Podcast One's Own. It's so good. (laughs) (laughs) i think virginia would be quite proud to hear that (laughs) right
0: (laughs) talking to the first female prime minister of
1: australia
0: it's like that's pretty good (laughs)
1: I thought she would be quite uh, proud to hear she was part of your stage, part of a stage in your thinking. Jennifer, that's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much. And good luck with the reporting of the election, but more than anything else, good luck with the result of the election.
0: (laughs) Yeah, amen, amen.
1: You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership
0: at King's College London. If you want to learn more about our work, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website and sign up to our updates. This podcast has been produced by Connie Blafari and James Miller with King's Online with editing
1: by Nick Hilton. If you liked what you've been listening to, we'd love it if you could rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider. We're always looking for feedback, and it really helps
0: people to learn more about our work. And please join us next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you.